Are you interested in attending one of the field's largest gatherings of K-12 education innovators? The Aurora Institute Symposium 2023 promises community lessons about education innovation from the field and the latest research and policy to support education transformation. We know that after attending, you will leave equipped to take immediate action in advancing next-generation learning designs. This event will take place October 15th through the 17th, 2023 in Palm Springs, California. You can find out more at aurora-institute.org. We are at uh, such an interesting time in education. It feels like there's growing consensus around uh, learner-centered education, rich learning experiences, broad measures of success, embracing well-being. There's a lot of excitement about new pathways, about uh, using credentials and learner records to unlock opportunity. Uh, and at the same time, there's a lot of snapback posts uh, pandemic to people just wanting a taste of something normal. We have a lot of estates experimenting with uh, new policies, unlocking opportunity outside the traditional system. And then there's AI, the rise of AI and a lot of us contemplating what it means to be an augmented professional, an augmented learner, and uh, how that's going to change the way we work and learn I'm Tom Vanderark, and uh, this is the Getting Smart Podcast, and today we're talking about this new, unsettled, exciting landscape with uh, repeat guest Kim Smith. Hi, Kim. Hey, how's it going? Kim is uh, one of my favorite people in the world and somebody I admire for uh, her work. She started a new school venture fund. We had the opportunity to work together in that space 20 to 15 years ago. Um, then she started this very interesting um, human capital uh, leadership development initiative called Pahara Institute that uh, hundreds of people have, have benefited from. And she spent the last two years um, looking at the education landscape and trying to make sense of both where we are and what the opportunity set uh, is going forward. Uh, what what would you find out? <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I always love being in discussion with you. And I wanted to start uh, just appreciating what you all at Getting Smart are doing and keeping us in dialogue on this learning edge. So thanks for all you guys are doing. I thought I'd share some headlines um, and then dig into a couple of them with you. So over the last two years, Jen Holland and I did a project. We talked to 200, it's probably coming up closer to 300 at this point, innovators in the space, convened leaders um, in a couple different contexts and really wanted to take stock of where is all that change that you listed at the beginning of the call? Um, and what does it mean about how to move forward? So there's a number of areas of convergence, as you said, and then there's some interesting areas of divergence um, and, some, and some fronts in front of us. That is what seems so interesting to me, that there, there's these areas of convergence, and then at the same time, it's sort of bipolar that they're are these new areas of dissonance where we're actually seeing the beginning of, of multiple systems, uh, a bifurcation. So interesting time to be looking at the landscape. It is. It is. So I feel like there's a, a couple very high level headlines worth sharing. The first is, and all of this is stuff that you and most of your listeners know, but I, I want to preface this by saying 
It's also a moment when we need to slow down a little bit and explain this to people who have not been as nerdy as the rest of us in this sort of frothy edge of change. We have an opportunity to bring a lot more people along. So the first header is this really truly is a different moment than we've ever seen before. We'll dig into the details on that in a minute, but you know that you wrote about that 10 plus years ago, but now we are in that moment for sure. The second headline is there are amazing innovators um, and change agents on every single lever of this system that we need to change, but they're fragmented and they don't necessarily connect into a coherent story, but they're great sort of building blocks on every front. The third headline is those amazing innovators have had to be operating around the dysfunctional architecture, the dysfunctional system. And we're in a moment now with the real potential, if we can rally a much wider base of allies to do the re-architecting of the system so that people can function in that system more smoothly instead of against all of the infrastructure set up against them. You mentioned a few folks who are working on that already, but, but to do that, we have to bring in a much wider set of allies, rural, suburban, urban, much bigger set of folks than we have thought about as our allies in the past. And I think to do that, we have to do some of what we're doing here today, which is slow down and kind of explain things and, and sew together some stuff that people could go find in your amazing library of great innovators, but they wouldn't necessarily know where to start. So we need to give a better starting point to these new allies so that we can re-architect. And then lastly, and this I guess relates to that new allies part, one of the biggest takeaways for me was this is an $800 billion plus system. And philanthropy is not showing up at the level it needs to for us to have the capacity to do that re-architecting. What came to mind was this Paul Ilvesacker quote, who's a famous program officer at the Ford Foundation, who said, at its best, philanthropy is society's passing gear. This is a moment when we need a passing gear, and we're going to have to count on philanthropy to step up in a bigger way to help us with that. So one one thing I'll just put a I'll put a link in the show notes. Jen and I are releasing a paper this week to try to help philanthropy step into their role a little bit more. We were asked by a lot of foundation folks, we see all this great innovation that's happening, Tom, that you referenced, but we're not quite sure where's the right entry point for us. So we have a little paper to try to kind of provide a primer and give them some entry points. Uh, let's um, let's just do a, a three minute sidebar on philanthropy. It, it feels like um, there, there's this, this started 20 years ago when I was in philanthropy, like a well-intentioned shift to strategic philanthropy where people have tried to nail down a strategy and a theory of change and a set of metrics. And the net net of that is, I, I think it's made uh, American philanthropy, including new money philanthropy, more risk averse and less responsive to the field. And so in some respects, it's had sort of the opposite impact and, and maybe it's reduced the, the number of complete disasters, but um, I think it's, it's made the sector less interesting, less helpful, less responsive to uh, the innovation. And, and I'm afraid we're back to where we were 20 years ago, where there's just a big lack of R&D capacity yeah, in, this, for sure. in this sector. And I mean, is yeah. that part of the observation? I think that's right. I guess I would frame it maybe slightly differently to be a little more hopeful, which might be a personality Rorschach or it might be true. I'm not sure. I think strategic philanthropy can make sense when you're in a steady state. 
And what you need to do is continue to expand, continue to iterate within the old system. So at that moment, I think strategic philanthropy makes sense because you're kind of in a steady state and there may be situations where that should continue. The point you're raising, I think, is correct, which is when we're in this big paradigmatic shifting moment, you have to approach philanthropy in a different way. And you have to be willing to take more risk, as you said. You have to be willing to like loosen up on your sense of understanding the theory of change. You have to be willing to place many more bets and to have a little bit, particularly, let's say, with respect to metrics, right? It doesn't make any sense if you're trying to re-architect a whole system to be looking at metrics that are annual for years one, two, and three. Like, that's ridiculous. You should know the direction you're moving in. You should have a sense of, you know, early indicators. We're not saying don't have any indicators, but so much learning will happen in that shift. You need to be ready as a philanthropist to kind of learn alongside your grantees, right? So I definitely agree with you that the strategic philanthropy um, risk aversion is not helpful to us right now. And that's part of why we're trying to, Jen and I were trying to present this little primer paper to say to philanthropists who had asked, like, what can we do differently? Here's what's happening in the space. And here are ways you can think about at the end, what we did was frame the opportunities in like three layers of risk, actually, to your point, right? Like the not that risky, not much change to the infrastructure, a little more risky, and then like really bold change because philanthropists are going to have to figure out where they sit on that risk profile, I think, for this next stage. Uh, Why is this a different moment? So many reasons. You highlighted a bunch of them. Pandemic mindset shifts, the science of learning and development, technology evolving with AI. But a um, a couple reasons that don't get as much emphasis. One is the generational shift. People often overlook this, but it has really massive implications. Sometimes people are acknowledging the way it changes how learners are approaching learning, right? They're digital natives, they go to YouTube, they can, you know, self-directed, that's true. But the other way it's creating a real force for change is on the talent side. They don't want the old teaching jobs. Like we can't just keep going forward the way we have been for the last century. So the fact that that generational shift is hitting us on two fronts, appetite for learning, approach to learning, and and unwillingness, frankly, like the pipelines going into teacher ed programs and schools is drying up. So we don't have a choice about whether to re-architect the system, in part because of the generational shift. You mentioned the broadening definition of success. That's another piece of this around social and emotional learning and competencies. And we're shifting from a focus on success in school, which was an important thing to do, to success in life, career, and democracy. So all of these are things you mentioned, but when you add them all up, and I'd maybe add the last one that hasn't gotten much attention is um, it's cyclical in this country, but we come back around to think about education as a national security issue, right? Going all the way back to a nation at risk that kind of fell off the radar screen, but it's back now with the sort of US-China competition, sort of global reorganization of powers. And, And the Aspen Security Forum recently put a piece out in which they said, as we think about national security, we have to think about really modernizing our education system to prepare the talent we need to stay innovative. When you sew all these things together, it creates a different moment where, honestly, I just don't think we can ask if we're going to re-architect the system anymore. It's already happening. We just have to say, like, how coherent will it be and to what end and how are we going to bake in some public goods? Um, but it's not a question of if anymore. So those those were some of the big headlines. The, the last big headline, which I, I know you know as well, is... Um, We're getting clearer on the fact that the really big problems we have to solve, the climate crisis, pandemic and other pathogens, how AI is going to affect society, 
a next phase of democracy and capitalism. I know this is sounding like a stretch, but, and you've mentioned this too, when you talk about purpose, this crisis of meaning and purpose and faith and like how people stay connected and combating loneliness and isolation, all those things that we see as first order big problems, we can't solve unless we fundamentally re-architect our education system and prepare people to be problem solvers. You know that many of the innovators who are doing this work know that that's a message that the general public hasn't yet really connected the dots on. So that's one other piece of what I think we need to help make clear in terms of the context. So I'll stop there on context and then I'll share some of the, where we saw the convergence. Your, your study focused on uh, K-12, right? But you, you could say many of the same things about higher ed. Higher ed's clearly in crisis. America's called BS on, on, on higher ed. And so we could add that to the mix, uh, making many of the same observations that uh, a transformation is underway, whether people acknowledge it or not. There's a lot of alternatives to both K-12 and higher ed that are emerging quickly. So yeah, most of the folks we talked about, we're kind of focusing on sort of six to 14, you know, JFF's big blur, like it comes down to maybe sixth grade up to 14, a little bit less attention right now on the earlier grades with the exception of kind of the role AI is going to play in changing instruction and sort of basic skills around reading and math. Aside from that, more, most of the attention was kind of six to 14. Yeah. Since you mentioned that, do a quick recap on your your take on AI. That all sort of happened while you were in the middle of this landscape. What's your what are your headlines on sort of where and how AI is going to make things better, and where it's going to make things more challenging? You know, in our original proposal for this research, it was listed as like factor four of six for why the change was going to happen. And by the end, it was sort of all people could see at the top of their list. Um, To be totally honest, I think we don't really know the answer to your question yet. I've been talking with folks who are deep in AI who are saying, so far, all the innovations they're seeing are really kind of, um, none of them are mission critical. They're all kind of marginal efficiency plays, which is fine and an expected place to start. I do think it's going to reshape basic skills instruction, it's just going to have to because it's we're, we've had such a hard time with reading and numeracy, like it will change how those things happen. And there will be a ripple effect, I think, from that back to, okay, if everyone gets a personalized tutor bot to learn that, how does it free up the talent and the human capital to do that more complicated social and emotional development, science of learning and development stuff we know is needed to be human um, it, it makes me think back, Tom, to like um, Joseph Ayun's book on like the age of AI and his new domain called humanics, right? To start this new area of study to say, in an age of AI, what does that mean about being human and where we need to leverage what it means to be human? So I think we're going to have to figure that out. The, the net effect on the systems change stuff I'm talking about, I think, is it has, for most people stopped the argument that we're staying in the old system. You know what I mean? Like they're sort of saying like, everything's going to stay the same. Oh, except for AI is going to make everything change. And so I think it's a doorway, but we don't know other than that, um, starting with basic skills and like some batching around assessments. Like there's obviously a lot of places it can be used. How 
radical the disruption will be, I think remains to be seen. But I'm, but I'm curious your thoughts on that. I've listened to Saul Khan a couple times talking about his enthusiasm for Conmigo, and he's certainly long on this idea of a personal um, digital learning assistant. Um, I've heard Reed Hoffman many times talk about, uh, he started a new company called Inflection that's announced a, a chatbot called Pi that is much more conversational, much more human, almost in a creepy way. Um, Reminds me of her from the movie 10 years ago uh, about having this life partner. Um, I, I guess I'm coming to terms with that idea. I'm, I'm not yet super enthusiastic about it, but it, it does feel like um, that idea will mature in probably in the second half of this decade and substantially change how we think about learning models. Um, what we've written about recently, uh, Mason, our producer, just wrote a piece yesterday about this idea of being an augmented professional. I do think it we're at the beginning of changing the way we think about what it means to be human and what each of us are capable of doing. And that's a pretty fundamental conception of its impact, not just in terms of oh, it'll help kids read better, but we can invite young people into increasing the more complex contributions in the world and invite them to think about themselves as a, as an augmented being, one that is more capable than ever before of entering into the world of making bigger and better contributions than they'd ever conceived of. That's a, that's a, fundamentally different way of thinking about being a, a person in the role that an education system has in it. I think as you suggested, we, that, that implies that we just have to launch a new set of community conversations, community by community. I don't think there's any short cutting that, that we just have to have conversations about what this means and how we're going to walk through it together and how we, Rebundle a set of agreements about what school is going to look like next year around uh, some updated learning goals. So I think that's the new work forward for ed leaders is the conversation later about what does this stuff all mean and what are we going to try to do different and better next year as a result. So let yes to the difference in learning tools, but what you're saying, which I agree with, is it's going to change what we need to think of as the outputs of the system as well, both in terms of the jobs being different if you're an augmented human, but also it brings in ethics, morality, moral leadership. Like if you can do all these amazing things, they can be in service of the good or the bad, right? Like it just raises the stakes, I think, on kind of like philosophy, morality, and ethics in the education system, right? In a way that hasn't been explicit before. Um, and I appreciate your point that communities have to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, that sounds right. Well, I, that's why I appreciate the, the spirit of your, you, the way you entered the dialogue today, that it, it is, with so much going on, it is, it's time to sort of regather and, and have this conversation about what's happening and what's the new opportunity set and how, how to, as many of us as possible, walk into that together. Yeah, I mean, we heard areas of real convergence. So that we're in this VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. AI obviously is a part of that real convergence around that. And that that's a big change that is way beyond education. And it's overwhelming to people. They don't know how to make sense of it. 
that in that world, we have to prepare young people for very different futures, roles, jobs, as you just said, and that the current system is not capable of that. So like if, if all we focus on is those three areas of convergence, it's pretty massive. Then it comes down to principles, which as you said at the top of the call, there's a lot of convergence around competencies, learner-centered, mastery-based progressions, design for equity, a new kind of rigor that we don't quite have yet, but the sense that we can develop that, SEL, all those things you said, agency, a more flexible system. So I think in principle, there's a lot of convergence around those principles, but it's really still at the principle level. And then there's a lot of variability for how people are kind of sewing those pieces together. Um, yeah. Can I, let, let me add that I'm um, I'm really optimistic about that space. The credentialing and learner record space is a is sort of the next iteration of mastery, and I do think we can better equip people with with ways of describing their capabilities um, and and communicating those to audiences they're interested in. I I am you know now I'm 25 years after helping to stand up what became NCLB and turned into this testing frenzy. I am a little bit worried about bad versions of credentialing that just turned into micro test taking, you know, or secondary school and post-secondary is just these, these endless skill sprints towards standardized tests, just instead of an end of year, it's an end of unit. Um, And that's a pretty dystopian view of school. This is, I don't know. I don't know if this is divergence exactly, Tom, but it is a problem area. So it didn't come out as an area of divergence so much as an area of question, which is how are we going to define rigor in this new world? If we move from a domain where we had basically academics only to one where we're going to have a modernized set of academics, which is going to have to mean smaller since we can get facts in all kinds of places, but a smaller set of facts than the SEL mindsets and then the sort of work of the future competencies. If we're doing three big domains we're going to have to do some really collaborative R&D and research work around what does rigor look like in those domains? And how do we think about that rigor cross-cutting them? Because someone might be quite advanced at certain like SEL mindsets, but not as, you know what I mean? Like people, it's going to be a much spikier and unusual set of explaining rigor. And then to your point, then we can hold up these different ways of credentialing and different badges and different approaches to say, do they line back up with that approach to rigor. Right now, I agree with you, it's kind of the Wild West because we haven't done that underlying kind of primary work around what does rigor look like. So people can do whatever they want on the output side, right? Um, And that is tricky. And as a parent, you know, I put my kids in a a sort of next horizon learning model at the beginning of COVID because I could tell our district was just not going to be able to handle the complexity of the moment. And it was entirely student-driven and project-based and virtual and they, they did a great job. And what I noticed in it was they had not addressed this question of rigor. And so it was all support and not challenge, right? And and it wasn't clear to the student what their bar was. So I think that's one piece that's going to happen in our new approaches to assessment is in the mastery-based system and a competency-based system, you got to tell the young people what it is they're developing so they can then be clear. And, and you've highlighted a whole bunch of models, One Stone and others that are doing this. I know XQ is working on it. Like Big Picture has their credential. Like There's a bunch of groups that are working on being transparent with learners about what is what it is they're developing and how they can demonstrate that mastery, which I think is super promising. We decided in our empathy interviews, there was some great research um, on kind of shifting parent, student, and educator mindsets in the current system. 
So we decided to focus, we partnered with Cambiar Education to do empathy interviews of parents, students, and educators who had moved into this Next Horizon already to ask them, what are the new skill sets you need? Why did you make this choice to move there? And how do you talk about it to other people? Because one of our big areas of divergence that's a problem is communication. Like, I mean, Tom, it's R&D, it's innovation, it's Next Horizon, it's learner-centered, it's, you know what I mean? Like, there's the, we're, we're in a communications problem right now in terms of bringing new allies in. But they said a, a handful of, I think, really important things. So one is, the parents said, one of the biggest challenges was getting comfortable with this question around rigor. How do I know if my young person is on track for what I want them to be able to do? I understand it's a different finish line. I knew how to read grades and courses. I don't know how to make sense of these competencies and where they're going. So that's an uncomfortable process for them to go through, number one. And then number two, a handful of them who were a little further along said, yes, I was very uncomfortable with that. And where I saw the payoff was when my kids went to either college or the workforce or whatever their next step was, that set of adaptable skills, communication skills, the ability to ask questions, like that is what they needed, which anyone who's a parent who's seen kids cross those gateways knows that's true. So how do we better communicate that? But parents are clear when it goes well, it's they're seeing the payoff. Young people said, um, 90% of the young people we, we talked to in these empathy interviews said one of the biggest skill sets they had to develop was time management, which we can all totally identify with. Time management, work planning, being adaptable, self-direction. And one thing that stood out across a number of these interviews was the ability to ask questions of the grown-ups in the learning context. So like we think of that as like you get to college, one of them had told this great story of like, getting to college and being prepared to have that conversation with the professor in the um, office hours in a way his peers were not because he'd already done that in high school. So like being able to learn how to talk to the grownups and ask for help um, and, and to feel like they had to be self-directed, whether it was totally student driven or not, just like more responsibility on them for the, for the process. A number of things stood out amongst the educators, but, but one that's coming to mind now is um one of the educators said in watching her peers adjust that it was it was the discomfort with the fact that the learning process wasn't linear and that they had to release a bunch of power to the students who were at various kinds of self-directed. And that was really uncomfortable because they had students at all these different places and they had to be kind of like paying attention. It wasn't like I'm on one path and I have one quiz that I grade tonight, which is boring, but linear and predictable. It was the opposite where personality-wise, skill set-wise, they had to be willing to release power and manage a lot more variability, which I think is one of the, that's one of our divergence areas. Like how much variability are we willing to tolerate in young people's paths? Let, let me just um, add right there that it, it's, it's not only for teachers, it's not only, this is not just a new set of skills for advanced personalized learning. This at its extreme is inviting them to think about themselves differently as a professional, as a learning professional. It, it's an identity issue of the role that you play um, in the system of, of not being a content expert anymore, but a learning facilitator and a team member or team leaders. Those are identity issues of thinking about yourself and your role differently as a professional I'm just acknowledging that that's, that's a profound ask uh, of a working professional, 
particularly when we haven't prepared them for that, right? Most of them are making that shift with sort of little to no um, preparation. Although the, the plus side of that, Tom, is that difference could bring a whole new set of folks into the profession who didn't want to be in the old, right, model. And, and it can make the work more interesting and more sustainable. I'm, you know, this is why I think we're both bullish on the work that ASU Next uh, Workforce has led for almost 10 years. Other other folks, opportunity culture. Um, yeah, we can make these the, the job of school uh, be much more interesting, much more sustainable. Um, yeah, get away from that old, remember the old adage where like your last day of teaching was exactly the same as your first day of teaching? Like that's crazy. So yes, we can move away from that. Um, a couple of the other areas of divergence. So communications, I mentioned, we have a huge problem there. Um, there's some divergence around, you know, what will school look like? Like, what is the vision, right? And you've done some great work on unbundling. There's some folks who believe it's entirely unbundled. There's a whole lot of people who think it's not going to be unbundled because folks need to come to a, quote, school. Like, they can't get past that sensibility and kind of the daycare component of it or the um, custodial care. Um, but how how unbundled will it be? How will we get to coherence? Um, how do we think about, um, there's a second piece to that a little bit, which is, you and I've talked about this, but the but the how do we balance the individual good, which is served by highly personalized learning and even unbundling where young people get exactly what they need, and the public good, which is one piece of what the public education system was set up to do in this country, which is to bring people together and to think about what might be standardized. So in this future system, like what's going to be totally up to you, the learner, or you, the parent, like student agency, parent agency, and what, if anything, is going to be standard that everyone will get? If it's not going to be content, which is some people want to stay content, but for those who are really pushing into the future and saying, well, probably not that much content, things emerge like, but we want to have a strong democracy. So what if we totally change things and said, everyone has to pass the citizenship test we ask of immigrants and everyone has to do a year of national service to kind of bring people together. I know that's a bold suggestion, but the reason I'm sharing it is to say the answer may look very different than a set of academic standards, right? Like something needs to be common to help us hold our democracy together instead of going completely tribal. But that something may have some content standards, but it may be different tools altogether. And I think that's an area where we're not not spending a lot of, people are asking those questions, but we're not spending a lot of time on what the solution set could look like. I agree. I uh, Every week or two, I sit in on a Civics Now call, which is a, a group of, I don't know, a couple hundred organizations interested in civics education and a stronger democracy. So there's a lot of conversation here. Uh, I, I don't yet see as much momentum in, in, uh, in school models and in, in portraits of a graduate, you know, community agreements about what kids should know. But, um, but this goes back to the fragmentation, right? Like that civics conversation, they're having conversations about some really important competencies. And then we have durable skills, which are also important competencies. There's an overlap on that Venn diagram, but they're not getting sewn together into a kind of coherent system for where we'd know our young people are getting these different parts, right? Like there's good work on careers. There's good work on civics. There's separate work on talent. All these things are great and they're in single levers and what we haven't done yet is put enough resources, people, brain space, time, and energy into like, how do we sew them all together? It's just a, 
There's this one great quote in one of our interviews that someone who is now an operator who used to be a funder said, one of our biggest problems is philanthropists want systems change, but they fund projects. Right there. True. We have all these amazing projects and we have amazing initiatives, but they're not yet, it's not clear how we can bring them together, right, into a coherent system that works. This, what feels like a, a bifurcation of the system, it feels like, I don't know, a third of uh, America is not interested in anything that includes uh, um, a public school system. And the way we've thought about it historically, are are we inev- inevitably headed towards uh, a, a bifurcated system? Is, is there a European alternative? Um, w- w- what what's happening? How does is is this going to be the two two systems? How how's this going to work out? Yeah, it's a it's a great deep hard question, and and it segues a little bit, I guess, into some of what we're trying to do with the Learner Studio. So I think we are on that track right now. So I think it's a great question, um, and I think it's going to take real intentionality uh, to get us out of that path and and. Of all the things we've talked about today, it's the one where I have the most concern and I am least clear that we're lining up the right resources and the right people and we're investing enough energy in addressing it. So I, I will say the way I think about it and how it relates to what we're doing at the Learner Studio is, so we've had this like soft launch of the Learner Studio this past year. We've got you know four different fronts, making common purpose, which is sort of like convening people and bringing them together around some key questions. This could fit there. Expanding the pie, which we've talked about in terms of bringing in more funding. Creating brave spaces also relates to this topic, so I'll dive deep in a second. And then the last is accelerating solutions, where I'm going to build upon what I learned at New Schools and partner with Cumbiar to like really invest in the entrepreneurs who are building ahead of demand to like get the system set up. That's where the conversations you and I have had around infrastructure fit and public utilities. But going back to this sort of bifurcated system, um, it's going to, our best hope at that, I think is to create a true third way coalition of folks who can bring the deep dedication to individual learners getting what they need and parents having agency, which is sitting in currently getting served by folks who bring a pretty libertarian bent to the work. There's a separate camp or center of gravity that are, I think of them as almost like liberal traditionalists, right? Like they don't want to re-architect the system but they do really care about belonging and SEL and changing a lot of how we approach the science of learning and development. Each of these camps has something incredibly important to offer and what we have to chart, and I do think there's a silent majority that wants this, but the but the really loud minorities are making it hard to hold the faith on that. So we've got to get much more active in bringing together that third way, silent majority. Um, there's some great research out there um, on specific policy solutions. I'm thinking back on conversations I had with Darrell Bradford and others around like the data's out there that that most Americans do actually agree on some pretty pragmatic, relatively centrist solutions. It's just, I mean, Tom, centrist pragmatic solutions are not sexy. They're not loud. They're not emotionally evocative. They don't, you know what I mean? Like it's so much easier to rally the base on the two extremes. So that's a part of what I really hope we can all collaborate on. We, we've, been excited about various technical things, which is super important. But to your point about the civics conversation and this conversation, like we got to get way more intentional and put a lot more people and a lot more resources behind crafting that third way. I don't know if coalition's the right word, but like 
getting those people together. Cause I do think they're out there, but they're all over the place instead of kind of in a concentrated intentional strategy. And this speaks to the, um, the communications problem too, right? Like the way we're going to communicate with that broader set of allies, we just don't have that communications answer yet, right? Like who's, who's building that? We're going to need to build that collaboratively. I think is, um, I, I guess I worry that, uh, that there's going to be a crash in the ESA space. It might be a fiscal crash, but we're, I think we're also going to headed for an outcome crash where um, there's disappointing outcomes around at least some of the education and savings accounts uh, solutions. And I don't know if that's inevitable. Um, I, I, I wonder if we can create a sort of an accountability superstructure that has some shared goals some accountability uh, for outcomes, some safeguards that uh, options are, are valuable for, for families that are looking for options. Um, that sounds a little bit more like a European system that has multiple pathways with you know national learning goals and that might work in a few states. It you know won't work in Arizona. Um, so, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, I think like you, we would like to um, to try to help make that new space uh, more productive and to, um, you know, just like the, we both did in the charter space to make it a, an innovation space, one where we're really producing valuable learning models that extend um, access to opportunity. I think there's that opportunity with ESAs, but... Um, Right now, it's kind of the Wild West. I think that's right. It is the Wild West. And I would just say, I do think we're also going to have to ask our left progressive allies who are unwilling to re-architect the infrastructure. They're going to have to loosen up some too. So if we want to come back from the brink on some of the ESA stuff and have some common third-way space of defining what's the core we want young people to have... That's going to require, I mean, that's why we need this third way space, because both of those camps are like at the extremes and we're going to have to define this, I don't know if middle is the right word. I don't even know what the right language is for it, right? But this common space that's going to have to look different than we use. It's not going to be a giant binder of academic standards, right? But there is going to have to be something core toward keeping a productive, diverse, democratic republic together. Oh, that's a little highfalutin, but <laughs> the stakes are high. Uh, well, speaking of stakes that are high, I, I guess one concern that I have in this decade in particular is there's a two dozen urban districts that have seen dramatic uh, reductions in enrollment over 20-year period of time that, and dramatic recent reductions in enrollment um, that have a, that are really sitting on uh, the, the brink of financial disaster uh, given their facilities obligations and their pension obligations. You know, they're basically bankrupt districts that are still trying to operate like big districts, but they're tiny districts. They, most of these districts are, have at least 50% of the kids already in charter schools. Um, we we saw a community effort try to come around in, in uh, Indianapolis and and help craft a you know a path forward a new a new more innovative sustainable path forward that doesn't look like it has worked um, 
those are tough opportunities. But if we don't step into those uh, situations soon, we're going to have several really bad um, bankruptcies that are they're going to have some real long term consequences. So that's an opportunity and a, and a crisis uh, on the list. Yeah. And I think it's a similar to like the generational shift, changing the pipeline for the talent, right? Like there's certain unavoidable crises that we're going to have that are going to make us redesign. And if what's happening is people are just trying to um, innovate around the edges of those districts you're talking about, it's never going to be enough. Like they're going to have to think of some, I hesitate to use the word radical because I know it upsets people, but honestly, they're going to have to have some radical ideas on the table where are those coming from? And how are we bringing people together across silos, across domains, across fields? Like that's a city problem in addition to being a district problem, right? To your point, like business cares. Like we have to think differently about who's around the table to solve those problems. And those assets that are thought of as district assets are really the public's assets, right? They could belong to the city and be used in different ways and not just be a school district. I, I, don't, I don't know that that's the right answer, but I, it's an example of the way we need to expand the question set, I think, to come to new designs in re-architecting the system. We'll include a, 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 a link to the, your report. Try to give us one or two of the takeaway headlines from that report as you summarize the wandering conversation we've had. I think it's really a different moment in time. We have to re-architect the system instead of innovating around the edges. In order to do that, we're going to have to expand the ally base that's involved in that conversation and create this kind of third way coalition. Um, it's going to require a much more significant investment from philanthropy so we can have that passing gear and do redesign. Redesign is a thing. You don't just like morph forward and it's redesigned. You have to really be intentional about infrastructure and public utilities and all kinds of things. So be intentional about that redesign. And lastly, one of the most hopeful parts is we have all these amazing innovators to build upon, but most of them aren't getting kind of general operating resources to grow and to scale. They're getting like project grants. So we need to fund them differently, build capacity. And one other thing that's going to let them do is collaborate more because right now they're kind of set up in a competitive way for too small a piece of the pie. So we have to expand the pie. And then we have these really deep, challenging design problems to dig into, like the one you just put on the table. You've put three or four on the table in this call, and that's the kind of work we have to dig into together. I appreciate that. I just, I'll underscore, uh, that's an important list, but I'll underscore the public infrastructure um, is going to be super important. We have a weird history in America, particularly in American education, of private infrastructure uh, and private data infrastructure in particular. We've created incentives where assessment companies own, um, you know, item level data. And as I'm quite convinced that every second post-secondary learner in America and, and most secondary learners by the end of the decade will have a learning and employment record that they'll use instead of a traditional transcript um, or use it to guide lifelong learning and to communicate their capabilities. But in the next 20 months, we'll decide how that infrastructure works and whether it's public infrastructure or private infrastructure and what kind of credentials will go into those learner records. And so we are just at a period where very important decisions are going to be made. I think you and I uh, hope that that's public infrastructure. Um, well, I think 
a public utility, whether it's owned by the public sector or it sits in a nonprofit governed by a group of, you know what I mean? Like, but it needs to be thought of as a public utility that we invest in and it is not privately owned and the individuals own their data. I think we totally agree on that. Yeah. And and you're launching Learner Studio to take on some of this work? Yeah, we've been we've been launching Learner Studio. We'll take on little pieces of it. We're trying to figure out where to add value on this common purpose and expanding the pie and brave spaces and solutions around the amazing innovators that are already out there. So yeah, do our little part. We're super excited about your next chapter. Um, Kim, I sort of alluded to this at the outset, but I don't think there's anybody in America that that's done more to um, to create good things um, in public education than you. You've developed more people and helped create more great new schools than anybody else. And so you've, you've already got uh, just a terrific legacy of contribution and we're super excited about what Learner Studio means uh, for all of us. So thanks for sticking with education, for having this conversation and sharing some of what you've uh, learned in the last couple of years. Mm, I appreciate that, Tom. I've been super lucky to work with amazing people like you and others. So I'm very grateful. Hey, uh, until next week, thanks uh, to Kim Smith for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha. Keep learning, keep leading, keep innovating for equity. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 